feedback from our customers and prospects is one of the best ways for us to test and improve what we do, to you know, help train and enable our salespeople, to, you know, to close gaps that we have, or to understand things that we're doing really well and spread those learnings across the business. This is Outside Sales Talk, the best podcast for outside salespeople. I'm your host, Steve Benson, and we're here to chat with the world's top sales experts so that you can get their best sales tactics to level up your game. Welcome back to Outside Sales Talk. Today, I have Kian McLaughlin with us, and we're going to discuss why you're winning and losing in sales. Kian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. Good to be here. So just by way of introduction, Kian is the founder and CEO of Trinity Perspectives, a sales training and consulting company specializing in win-loss analysis and sales transformation. He's also a 20-year veteran of the B2B sales industry, including some senior roles in some of the world's largest software companies. Additionally, Kian is the author of the Amazon best-selling book, Rebirth of the Salesman. Um, well, let's jump right in. Uh, Kian, what do, you, what do you think is the most common assumption salespeople make when they lose a sale? What goes, what goes through their heads? Yeah, that's a good question, Steve. Um, let me come back to the word assumption in a moment, because I think that's a really important word in that question. Um, salespeople tend to think of three or four common uh, factors that might have influenced them to lose. We think we might have lost on price. Uh, we think we might have lost because they were always leaning towards someone else. They were always leaning towards either their incumbent or another technology. So, you know, they've kind of made it, they made their mind up and we were just really there for, for cannon fodder or we were there to, to make up the numbers. Maybe we didn't get enough executive sponsorship or our internal champion wasn't strong enough or, you know, something of that nature. Um, you, you know, we hear other reasons, but these are ones which are, the nice thing about these reasons are it's sort of beyond our control. If I'm a salesperson, I can kind of sort of say, well, you know, all of those things to some degree or other were beyond my control. It's very rare that we talk to salespeople who say, I didn't do a very good job. My discovery was poor. The quality of my uh, proposal was, was average. Um, I really just phoned it in. We don't hear those sort of uh, reasons from salespeople. But the key word, as you said, is assumptions because the vast, vast majority of salespeople and sales leaders and sales organizations are making assumptions about why they won and lost. They don't actually know the answer. So they're arriving at a, an educated guess at best. You know, they're sitting around as a, as a sales team collaboratively saying, why do you think we lost? Why do you think we lost? And then they're kind of synthesizing the, that conversation and they're sticking it into their CRM system as the, as the accepted narrative for what had happened on that deal. We've just spent three months pursuing this opportunity, cost us $100,000. Okay, we've agreed it's price, it's lack of executive sponsorship, and it's one other, and that's it. And we move on to the next one. And it's just, it's just a fundamentally broken, flawed, wasteful uh, way to, to approach sales. And what would you say is the right way to approach uh, losing a deal? How, how should they think about it? So, so my philosophy is pretty simple on this, and it's kind of been honed, as you said, you know, I've been in the industry for, for a long time. Whether we win, whether we lose, or whether we draw, we have a, 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 you know, a no result outcome. If we've done a decent job, we've earned the right to some feedback as part of that process. You know, our cost of sale has paid for at least some level of, of debrief at the end of the sales cycle. But an internal debrief really doesn't deliver much, if anything. What we need to be doing is we need to be tapping into the, the knowledge, the nuggets of value from the customer or the prospect we've interacted with. And we need to be saying to them, hey, we'd really like to sit down and, and have a conversation with you and reverse engineer the, the buying cycle that you went through with us and underst understand what we did well, what we did poorly, where we have some room for improvement, how we, how we compare it to our competitors or our peers, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and so, you know, in my own career, I worked, as you said, you know, for some of the biggest tech companies in the world. And, and this was a kind of a, an emperor's new clothes moment. I was like, why aren't, why aren't we doing something? Yeah, I played sport all my life. And as a, a, in sport, you watch the game take back. You know, if you want to be a professional athlete, you always look for, you know, the one and the 2% margins for improvement. You want to understand your competitors. We're not doing that as a sales industry. 
you know, the, you get the sales in sales professional for free. The professional bit you actually need to earn. And one element of professionalism is, are we doing our analysis? Are we watching the game tape back? And, and for me, as an industry, we're not doing that enough. So that's a huge gap that we need to close. Yeah, I, I could not agree more with that. Um, what, what about the negative assumptions that you mentioned there, uh, like in terms of, you know, the, ne the negative assumptions that people commonly make, which then they lose a sale. What, how, how, do, how do those negative assumptions affect a salesperson's win rate? Well, here's the thing. If, if I make assumptions, then I'm going to start to do things differently based on those assumptions. So if I think I'm losing deals on price, I'm going to probably start discounting in order to, to, to try and close that gap. If I think I'm losing deals based on the quality of my uh, negotiation, for example, I'm going to change my behavior. The problem with that is that might not be the issue. And so, you know, we talk about sales training and sales transformation. The big problem I have with sales training or transformation or whatever term you want to use is how do we know where to point the guns? How do we know where to focus our efforts? When we go out and tap into the feedback of our customers, they very quickly tell us where the gaps are, where the problems are, what the stuff is that they don't that doesn't resonate with them. And that makes it much, much easier to then say, okay, this is what we need to go away and fix. Because you could have a problem with your your um, your legals and your commercials, but you're trying to fix something at the front end of your sales cycle because you haven't identified that as the gap. So when we talk to all of these customers, as we do all over the world on behalf of vendors. The stuff they tell us is really interesting. So instead of making assumptions about why we lose big customers, I'll tell you why you lose big customers. You lose big customers because your marketing content and your RFPs and your, your proposals are generic. You lose big customers because they see you as unprofessional or they see you as unethical because of some part of your process. You lose them because you fail to make any real emotional connection through the sales cycle. So nobody's actually going into bat for you. You lose them because they perceive you as too too risky or too cheap or too niche in the area that you're in, or you haven't got a strong internal coach or you haven't got coverage in the C-suite or you haven't got really, really good win teams. There's a whole lot of things that we hear from customers as to what influences them to say no. And these, that's where the gold is. And my, my thesis is really, really simple. It's you've earned this feedback. You know, one of the most frustrating things as a salesperson is pouring your heart and soul into a bid or a pursuit or a, or a tender and losing and not understanding why that that kind of gnaws away at your at your soul but if you understand what happened then you get to learn and you get to move on you get to extract some value from that process and that's the big thing for me and i think it's a fundamental uh flaw within the within the b2b sales world yeah that that makes a, a tremendous amount of sense what would you say is the most common reason that salespeople really lose deals Look, I think it's poor discovery would probably be the, the single most um, uh, pressing issue that we see. We're rushing the, the really important bit. You know, we have this kind of show up and throw up mentality. Let me show you my product. Let me, you know, let me talk about my solution. The problem with that is if we haven't identified what really is happening on the customer side, you know, what their pain points are, then all we're doing is just throwing features and functionality against the wall and hoping some of it sticks. Whereas if we've done that kind of the, the discovery or the diagnosis piece, then it becomes really, really easy because we're, we're joining the dots between the stuff you've told us and the stuff that we do really well, which becomes our, our key points of differentiation or you know, becomes the value in the eye of the customer. There's, there's a huge um, impetus to sort of move deals through the pipeline really, really quickly. And as a result, we're rushing that kind of discovery phase we're trying to do a jigsaw puzzle with all the pieces upside down, whereas the customers are really, really happy to, you know, to turn those pieces over for us. We, we've reached out to a bunch of customers. We've done a whole lot of research. And one of the questions we've asked is, you know, what advice would you give to salespeople if you could, you know, sit them down in a room and talk to them and then say, and they, and they said to us consistently, listen, listen more and take, take more time to understand. Stop just telling us about your products. We don't care about your product. So is that what, what sales reps that are more likely or, are, or to win, or I guess are winning a higher percentage of deals on a team than people who are uh, winning a lower percentage of them? Is that what they're doing differently? Is it listening and, and therefore discovering, doing better discovery? I think that's one, one element. There's, there's a number of elements that, that we see with, um, with people who are really 
consistently strong performers. I think they've got a ton of curiosity. So they're not going in with preconceived answers to the question. They're also asking much better questions. So, you know, you'll be judged on the quality of the questions you ask. So if you ask great questions, you'll be judged accordingly, but also the, the quality of the answers you get back will be, will be much, much better. So, you know, they're, you know, they're humble. They're not coming in and, you know, beating their chest and talking about how great they are. They're, they're curious. They're taking the time to do good discovery. They've, they've got really good EQ, so they can kind of build a little bit of rapport and connection. And, you know, they've got some empathy for, for the customer. They've got a bunch of credibility. So they're actually not coming in with this kind of off kilter dynamic where the customer is up here and we're down there. You know, they know that they bring value. They know that their time is precious as well. Um, and, and, and they earn the right to move to the next step. The, the biggest failing I see of a lot of salespeople is we don't earn the right to move to the next step. We, we're, we're trying to make a sale. The, the best salespeople aren't trying to make a sale. All they're trying to do is earn the right to move to the next step in the process. And at some point they run out of steps and that's when the sale gets made. But if, if they concentrate on that process of moving forward and adding value through each interaction, that's, that's when the magic happens. And other than that focus on uh, adding value for their customers to get to, get to the next step, are there any other critical sales behaviors that um, salespeople that you really see when a high percentage of their deals are a higher percentage than their peers? Or is there a certain sales behavior you see them doing? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a bunch of things. Um, they manage risk much, much better than, than most of their competitors. Um, and what do you mean by, by manage risk? Well, so, so this, is, this is a really, really interesting topic. And it's, it's an interesting topic it would have been an interesting topic 12, 18 months ago, but now in a, in a, in a pandemic, post-pandemic era, it's even more critical. We are hearing so much from the customers we interview at the moment that um, risk, uncertainty, uh, this sort of desire not to do anything more to change their business because there's so much change and uncertainty and things beyond their control at the moment. So what really great salespeople are doing is they're getting in and understanding, help us understand what the risk factors are for you as an organization, but also for you as an individual. And then they're getting really smart about saying, okay, how can we better understand, manage, mitigate, take, take ownership of some of those risk factors? So the low risk option is winning an awful lot of the time at the moment, uh, because for customers, that gives me a sense of security. It makes me feel, we've, you know, you've got a safe pair of hands. And by, by low risk, it could be saying, well, I'm going to put a, a milestone payment terms in. So until we do this, we don't get paid the next tranche. And until we do... Great. From a customer perspective, that mitigates my risk. Or I'm going to do something in relation to the quality of the team that we put on the park um, to, to give you that sense of, of uh, assurance that this is going to go well. Or I'm, there's a million different things that we can do. But really, really smart salespeople take the time first to tease out and understand those risk factors for their customer. And then as part of their proposal, their bid, their presentation process, they say, Okay, that's how we're going to help you with that. That's how we're going to own that. That's how we're going to take that away. And that's huge at the moment. So risk mitigation um, is probably one of the single most important things any salespeople can be doing right now. So that's just one factor. And if a salesperson realizes that they aren't in the best mindset uh, to, to be a winning salesperson, how, what advice would you give them to reset their mindset uh, about their customers and their relationships with their customers? You know, the first thing I'd say is that sales is a tough gig. You know, it's not, it's not a sprint, it's not a marathon. It's like a, a never-ending ultramarathon. So before, before you even think about your customer, I would say start thinking about yourself and look at, look at the factors around you that are applying stress or pressure to you in your in your day-to-day -day life you know it's the it's the old adage of put your own your own oxygen mask on first before you put on the oxygen mask of you know others or your kids or whatever and i think an awful lot of sales people aren't actually doing that they're not doing a good enough job looking after themselves their mental health their well-being their physical health for that matter as well so that's actually the, the thing i would say before you ever worry about that focus on on yourself and your, and your mental and, and physical well-being then i would say the key thing you need to do is you need to sort of remove the desperation from, from your mindset, from your voice, from your interactions with customers, because humans are really subtle. We can, we can smell pressure or bullshit at a thousand yards and it immediately, we, we immediately recoil. So as soon as you start being salesy with me, 
I, I'm, I'm immediately going to recall, even if the thing that you're selling me is, is a value, because I get a natural sort of predatory instinct. So what, what people need to do instead is, is recognize that, that nobody wants to be sold to, but everybody wants to be helped. So that's where they need to put their focus. And it goes back to what I said a moment ago, focus on earning the right to move to the next step, take, which takes the pressure off your shoulders. You don't need to make a sale. Forget about making a sale. Just make this next interaction a really, really great one because the customer will be judging you at each of those steps and that will influence how they make their, their ultimately their buying decision. So that's where you need to focus. You know, get, get micro, not macro. Get, get really focused on, okay, the next email, the next conversation, the next interaction. And then you start to look at what are all of the different things because we tend not to be 50% better or 50% worse than our competition. It's all of these little one and 2% increments and all the way through the sales cycle that ultimately build up to kind of put us in the lead or put us in the back of the pack. And that's what I would strongly encourage salespeople to do is start getting really focused on the interactions, reverse engineer and prepare for those, do a great job, and then you earn the right, earn the right to move through. And how can a salesperson... Um... Well, I guess first, how is the sales industry evolving and how can a salesperson develop an effective strategy to evolve with uh, the, the, the changing times? You know, it's funny. I wrote a book, uh, which is sitting behind me on the shelf, and which you guys very kindly put on your, your 50 top uh, sales books. That I wrote that four or five years ago about the evolution of salespeople. And the evolution has just... Um, expedited in, in speed since then, and, you know, and certainly in the last 12 to 18 months. So you know, I was luck, lucky enough to, to travel to the Galapagos Islands a few years ago and you know, where, where Darwin came up with his sort of um, you know, uh, theory of evolution. And, and back then we talked about survival of the fittest, but for me nowadays, for, for sales professionals, it's very much around this kind of concept of survival of the, of the most adaptable and the most curious. What we need to do is be prepared to disrupt skills that were, were really valuable to us in the early stages of a sales career and look for ways to replace those. Because, you know, Steve, you've had so many people on this show who, who uh, have, you know, sales tech and sales automation products and services. There's so many things that we used to do as salespeople that are just being eroded by technology that are being taken away. Um, and that's great because what that should mean is that we have more time to focus on the higher value tasks and activities. But you need to be ready to do that. You actually need to have the skill set and the capability to, to do those high value things, you know, to, to find a way to go uh, beyond marketing to thought leadership, to find a way to add value each step of the process. So, so salespeople really need to, to, to start leaning into uh, to the adoption of new technology on the one hand, but also to the stuff that can't be replicated by tech. You, you know, you often, we often hear that like soft skills are actually the hardest skills to, to, um, uh, to develop and to, to hone. Soft skills are where an awful lot of the, the successful salespeople are gonna be making their bread and butter over the next three to five years, in my opinion. Yeah, that, I, I agree. The best thing about all the technology that automates the boring stuff, and obviously, you know, I, that's one of the things we focus on at Badger, but you know, the, all, the fo all the technology out there that's doing all the boring stuff or the repetitive stuff or the stuff that computers can do it really frees the reps up to spend their time selling, spend their time with their customers, creating value, understanding their customers, um, you know, taking their customers out for, for, for a steak dinner. Right. Um, I, I think that's, that's so, so important uh, to, and, and a great, a great development of, you know, from when I was carrying a bag 20 years ago. Right. I mean, I spent Absolutely. so much time doing boring things. <laughs> like, but here's the thing, if you have all this free time, it's, it's kind of being, being confident that you have the ability to use that time in, in, a, in a smart way. Because if you, were, if you were one of the salespeople who was quite happily updating their CRM system or doing account plans or doing all those other things, because it kept you, the busy work keeps you away from the other work, which is sometimes the, the scarier work, which is sitting down and working out how you're going to hit quota or proactively prospecting or doing some of those other things. And, and this is, I think, the really, really key thing. It's, I don't think it's an age-based issue. It's not like, you know, the older salespeople are going to struggle. It's the ones who don't have a, 
a willingness to disrupt the things that made them successful in the past. The ones who are sort of, you know, leaning back on the, oh, you know, I closed a hundred million dollar deal. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Seven years ago. And, and you've been in this sort of slow debt spiral ever since going from, you know, smaller company to smaller patch to, you know, to smaller accounts because you haven't been able to, to reestablish what it is that can make you successful. So we've got to, we've got to actually look in the mirror and be really honest with ourselves. And we've got to take much more proactive approach to developing ourselves as well. I think one of the, I made this mistake in my own career of thinking my company should develop my skills. That's, that, that's the way it works. And actually now there's such an incredible opportunity. You know, so much content and information and insights and just great stuff available for free, but you actually have to be proactive and you actually have to want to develop yourself and own that part of the process. Uh, so I think that's a huge, huge thing for, for not just salespeople, any professionals to kind of, to be proactive in their own self-development rather than expecting someone else to do that. Yeah. For, for free or for a, a small cost or yeah, at, at the company level. I mean, even if you're, in my opinion, even if you're paying 10 grand for a sales expert to come in and, and teach your team something, that's still real cheap compared to the value you can get out of it with the right people coming in. Well, if you can move the needle in a meaningful way for a large group of people, it's that's that's jump change. And, you know, I yeah. see in the world I'm in, companies are very happy to invest in it. The big challenge is, will will the recipients take action you know will it wash over you or will it sort of stick and you go okay i'm going to try something new i'm going to break an old habit and i'm going to i'm going to try something new and that's that's the big challenge and that ultimately is a personal decision for a lot of people to take yeah well if if people today can just take the take a the key feedback that uh, or the key idea that they need to get feedback on the deals they lost i mean if you could just get your team to do that that the, the learnings there, I, I think, you know, that that's invaluable. If you can learn, why did I lose that last deal? Get an actual true answer out of your, out of your customer that can, that can change the whole game. And it's it, so surprising, Steve, as well, you know, we'll, we'll have these conversations, you know, we'll, we'll talk to a salesperson or a sales leader and say, why do you think you lost this deal? And they'll give us, you know, chapter and verse, and then we'll talk to their customer. And, they, and the two responses will be so far apart, you, you wouldn't even recognize them. And when you bring it back to the sales team and say, this is what your customer said, here's, you know, we recorded them, we transcribed it, we interpreted for you. Like their jaws hit the floor. They're like, how the hell did that, inf- we, we had no idea. We didn't, you know, so, so this is the thing. On a, on a global scale, we've got all of this sales execution, right? We've got all of these, you know, tens of hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars of bids and proposals and pursuits and tenders and all of that sort of stuff happening. And then we have this just mountain of value in terms of this feedback from our customers and our prospects. And only the tiniest percent of it is ever being kind of mined. Um, and it's just, it's just a, a, an absolute sort of travesty that we're we have so much wastage going on in our industry and, and we're just missing out on all, all this value. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. It's such, it's such an important thing. And I think so few sales organizations and, and individual, individual sales reps at, at that level uh, take the time to, to do that. And I think it's, uh, it's an easy thing to forget to do and, and feedback often is, right? Whether you're, whatever kind of employee or relationship you're, you're in, you know, it's, it's hard to do. It's mentally stressful to do. It's especially if it's under bad times, right? Um, it is, but feedback's a gift as far as I'm concerned. And if we treat it that way, if we treat it as a gift, then it has this magical ability to sort of, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. It can, it can help us. Whereas if we don't value it or we don't proactively try and seek it out, customers aren't going to come, come knocking on your door saying, hey, would you like to, you know, spend an hour with us to, to, so we can explain why you lost? There's no, no upside to them in doing that. But as a professional courtesy, if you ask the question in the right way, most of them will agree to do it. You know, the, the, there's stuff they may not share, but, but there's a ton of stuff they will share and it's, and it's super valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what would you say, so in, in your book, uh, each chapter focuses on a different character trait of, of salespeople. What, what, what would you say the three top traits are that will win more deals and and how can a sales rep develop those traits or those skills yeah it's a good question I, like i wrote my book and i didn't necessarily think that that was anything particularly crazy or unique about breaking down sales into their kind of character traits but i've had a ton of response to that particular issue 
I think curiosity is the one that I would I would always lead off with. You, you've got to genuinely be interested in what's happening on on the customer side of the fence because if you have this like I've done this a million times, you know, kind of show up and throw up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hear you. I hear you. This is what you need. You just lose so much value, you know, and, and and the capacity to influence that customer and to connect and build rapport and all of those other things goes out the window because you've kind of you've already answered the questions for yourself. So so you've got to maintain that level of genuine curiosity, genuine interest, not just in the customer you're working with, but but in the industry vertical, in your competitive landscape, in in life in general. I think I think that's a really really key one because if you're curious the quality of your research goes up, the quality of your questions goes up and the way that you engage with your customer goes up. And here's the key thing, Steve, and this is a big realization for me through the last 10 years of conducting win-loss reviews. People, people aren't buying your product or service. They're buying you first and foremost. So everyone thinks that they work for a company and that's the brand and their business card, but actually that's, that's the wrong way around. We are the personification of the brand that we work for and people are actually buying us. Uh, first and foremost. And so that's really, really important. I think the second thing I'd say would be probably kind of uh, this sense of humility, which is almost going at odds with what we think of salespeople. You know, there's this kind of uh, brash, you know, kind of the loudest voice in the room, you know, ego, arrogance, all that sort of stuff. Whereas actually, in my experience, a lot of the best salespeople are, are quite the opposite. Some of them are quite introverted, but, but tend to be quite humble. And if anyone's going to be on a pedestal, it's going to be the customer. So, so they're, you know, almost the conductors of the orchestra. They don't need to be the, you know, the lead, the lead guitar player. They're very, very happy to sort of be in the background, making their customer um, the, the central point. And then I think the last one I'd say, you know, and it's, it's hard to kind of pick three because I think, you know, there's many that are important, but. Well, we can only do three because people have got to read your book. Well, that's exactly right. <laughs> You know, we, we often talk about IQ in, in the world is like, you know, what's your IQ and, you know, but I think EQ is the new IQ. I think, I think your, your emotional quotient and your capacity to build connection and rapport with people and to move people and to influence people in a way that feels very natural and very uh, authentic is probably the most critical skill. And, you know, if you want to differentiate yourself from automation and AI, go all the way to the other extreme is emotional intelligence and, you know, an EQ. So I'd say they're probably my three for today. And by EQ, you mean like the ability to emotionally put yourself in the other person's shoes and really understand them and, and identify and understand your own emotions as they're coming up and identify and, and understand emotions in other people. It, what, what else would you say is, is to well, that? Well, I think, I think you, you know, you've summed it up quite nicely. The first thing is about understanding yourself because it's very hard to understand others before you have a really clear understanding of, of yourself and, and the things that motivate and demotivate you and what puts you in a, in a, in a, in a place of kind of uh, high engagement and what really turns you off. So, so there's a bit of self-reflection required to, to get comfortable in your own skin before you can then go out and start to empathize with others. But I think it's more yeah, than well, that. Well, how, how do you do that? I mean, it's easy, it's easy to say, let's raise our EQs, but how do you actually, um, what advice would you give to someone who wants to um, develop their ability to understand what, where their emotional state is at and identify yeah. emotions and kind of be, get more in tuned to those within themselves and, and within others? Well, I think the first thing I'd say, and it goes back to something that you and I talked about before, is start to do some some research, start to take some ownership of it, because there's some incredible books and resources and videos out there on emotional intelligence. The thing I found most fascinating about emotional intelligence or EQ relative to IQ is your IQ stays fixed. So you're, you're born with a, with a certain IQ. Yes, you can learn more information, but you know, scientifically, they tell us your IQ, unless you have some sort of brain trauma or injury, is going to stay pretty much fixed for your entire life. Your I, I hope so, because I feel so much dumber than I was 10 years ago. <laughs> Could have easily been a, you know, a ball to the head or something. I'm not quite sure. I probably had a few of those. But the EQ is, is actually something that you can change. It's something you can develop. It's something you can work on. It's something you can, you can, you can improve over time. So, so you know, I don't pretend to be... Uh, you know, a leading expert on that. But what I do know is that, that you, can, you, can, you can track and score your EQ, you can identify where you're strong and where you're weak, and then you can start to put strategies in place to actually close the gap in those areas that you're weak and to lean into the areas that you're particularly strong. So anyone who wants to do that is in a position to do that with no money down, you can go and do the research. And but the thing is, you've got to want to, you've got to take some ownership, you've got to take some, some control. 
Yeah, it's really work on you, that, that one has to do in themselves because no one else, pe- pe- people may identify that you are lacking in some emotional area, but they usually won't. And, and uh, unless, unless you're going to a therapist or something, but, uh, but you, I, I think it's hard to really connect. To, it, it's hard to identify like with these things. And it's not a natural emotion. I think it's one that you have to kind of like sit down and, and think about, well, you know, in that last interaction, was I empathizing? Yeah. Was I really seeing things, things from the other person's perspective? Like, how could I have done it more? What, what about the other things, like the curiosity and the humility? How, how can you develop your curiosity or humiliate, humility as a salesperson? Look, I, I think yeah, it's tricky. It's, there's, no, there's no easy answer to it. I think curiosity, you know, if you look at a kid, most kids are incredibly curious and they're looking at stuff and they're really interested in things. And I think as we progress through life, there can be this tendency, a little bit more jaded, a little bit more cynical, a little bit more worldly. Oh, I've seen it all before. I've done it all before. And that sometimes is reflective of where we're at in our, in our careers as well. You, you know, if you feel a little bit stuck, if it feels a little bit like Groundhog Day, then th- that's kind of, that's the outlook of which we, we, we take to the world. But th- the thing about curiosity is if I'm going, if, if I'm having a meeting with you and I, and I go and do, you know, 45 minutes or an hour's worth of, of research ahead of time and, you know, a little bit of due diligence on you, a little bit of cyber stalking, find out some stuff, just, just kind of go a little bit deeper. There's a high probability that the quality of the conversation we're going to have will be better. And I can, I can kind of join the dots to things that maybe you haven't told me, but I've, I've found out myself and that will take our relationship forward more quickly. And it, you know, everything kind of advances, you know, you, you could, anyone can do that. Anyone can do that, but you just have to have the care factor. And you, you know, you could, you could say, well, it's not, that's not curiosity. That's just research with intent to, you know, uh, improve a relationship more quickly. Yeah, maybe it is, but how it, how it manifests itself is you did research, you were curious, you were interested. So read around the topic. Don't just sort of say, well, you know, I only work with companies that do this. So I'm only going to ever focus on these. Well, what about adjacent industries? Where are they borrowing ideas from? How do you bring those things to bear? Because if you can sit in a meeting and talk beyond the, the, the four walls of your product offering and talk about industry trends and talk about interesting conversations you have with other thought leaders and then start to actually move the conversation forward and leave with insight, they're, they're just going to wrap their arms around you and say, hey, how quickly can we, can, we, can we start working with you? Because the big learning for me is we think we're selling pro- on product and price. Product and price get you from the long list to the short list. People and purpose get you from the short list to being selected as the preferred supplier vendor and actually then working with you into the future. So that's where we have to focus our time and our effort and our energy. Yeah, so well said. Um, what, what do you think, uh, I'm, I'm super interested in the feedback side and I, that, that's, that, I, I feel like that's really, if, if people could take something away, that's, what, that's, the, that's the nugget. That but what's the, what's the best way, would you say, to elicit or you know, how do you get that effective feedback about how a sales process went from customers? Like walk me through the talk path of, of you um, approaching a customer that you, you, know, they, you got an email from them a week ago saying, hey, Thanks for thanks for chatting with us these past few months about about our this initiative, but we decided to uh, go a different direction. How, how do you take things from there to getting the feedback and getting the understanding of of what happened? That's a really really good question, and it kind of it goes to the heart of everything that we do. Let me just roll back one one second and say this: it's better to ask during the sales cycle. Than it is, you know, don't, don't try after the horse is bolted, there's no point in closing the barn door. So what I'd say to you is, Hey, Steve, look at the end of this engagement, win, lose or draw, we'd really love to, to get some feedback from you. Cause what we find is feedback from our customers and prospects is one of the best ways for us to test and improve what we do to, you know, help train and enable our salespeople to, you know, to close gaps that we have, or to understand things that we're doing really well and spread those learnings across the business. So, if it's all right with you at the end of this kind of sales engagement, whatever you decide, we'd love to have a bit of a debrief with you. Is that something you'd be open to? And invariably, customers will say yes, particularly at that early stage of the sales cycle, because it's in their best interest to. They need you at that point. After the deal is done, they don't really need you, whereas you know during the sales cycle, they do. So what you're asking for is appropriate. It's professional. You're doing it in a courteous way. You're explaining what you're going to use the the, the feedback for, but also what you're not going to use it for. We're not going to use it to, to beat up on our salespeople or to try and get back in by the back door or to call foul on your process or anything of that nature. 
this is what we're going to use it for. So we find that people are actually very, very receptive to that because it makes sense. It's a professional, appropriate thing to do. And it actually differentiates you from your competition early in the sales cycle by, by demonstrating your company that kind of is quite proactive in this area. But there's a couple of key things that I learned over the last decade. Firstly, it's a little bit awkward or uncomfortable for customers to provide feedback if they're providing that feedback to the people that the feedback is about. So our advice to any organization is you've got effectively you've got two options. You either do it yourselves or you get an independent third party to do it. And there's pros and cons to, to both of those. But if you choose to do it yourself, find somebody who's independent inside your organization who has a little bit of separation, who wasn't involved in the sales cycle. Because one of the biggest fears that customers have, and this happens often, is when they do a debrief, they start, like, the, the vendor starts arguing back with them. Like, no, no, I don't agree with No, I don't agree with that. They're like, well, hang on. I, you asked for feedback. We're giving you feedback. We're not asking for a dialogue here. This is just us giving you the feedback that we, you know, and, and because it's incredibly difficult to separate ourselves from the feedback. Well, Keen, I, I think you were quite pushy and you didn't listen very well. Well, I, well, I don't agree with that. So, <laughs> so what we need to do is if, if feedback is a gift and if we really want it and we really see value in it, then we need to create an environment that makes it as easy as possible for customers to give that feedback in a way that feels comfortable, natural to them without feeling awkward or uncomfortable. And so when I embarked on this journey more than a decade ago, I was, I was still working inside a very large global tech company. And I started to do these reviews with customers and reach out to them to do these debriefs. And then I, was, I, I got stuck in a weird position where I was getting all this feedback, which related to me and my boss and my peers which wasn't necessarily great feedback. And I didn't know what to do with it because I was like, well, I can't really sit my boss down and say, you pushed them too hard because of your end of quarter pressure. And as a result, we lost that 600K deal. Or equally go to my pre-sales guy and say, you know what, you're spread too thin. And as a result, that, that demo was crap. And, and our tender response was really poor. I just I didn't feel comfortable, didn't sit right with me, but also what, it's not really my role or my job to do that. So you need to have that independence, both for the sake of the customer, but also because if you shine a light on something, if you say, we really want to know this stuff, then when you find it out, you actually have to go away and do something with it. You can't sort of sweep it back under the rug again. So, so there has to be a sort of an appetite inside a, a sales organization to say, we're open to some, some hard truths. We'll, we'll take our medicine here if, if the customers share it with us, and then we'll do something about it. Because otherwise, you're better off not shining the light in the first place because you can't unsee some of this, uh, some of this feedback. So, so yeah, that'd be my advice would be do it, but don't necessarily feel that you have to do it yourself. You can certainly get someone else in, inside your organization to do it, but then just approach it in the right way. Look at your sales cycle, break it down into, into its component parts and just ask them questions like, well, what would we like to engage with, engage with at the front end? What was our marketing content like? Was it good? What about our follow-up? Did we gate our content or do we make it easy to access? You know, how do we compare to the other companies you looked at in terms of the quality, the, the breadth, the, you know, the, I don't know. And then you just work, work through the sales cycle. You just, you just break it down and they will just blow the back of your head off with, with stuff that you just never knew, you know, and it's amazing. And it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, those are both incredible pieces of information that um, I don't think I've come across in my entire career. I mean, do it, but both to, to set up, um, up front that you're going that you're going to ask for feedback in the future, you know, early in the sales cycle, I think is a really powerful tool. Um, you know, it's, it's like when you do a follow-up, you, you, you know, you want to prep your follow-up by letting them know, Hey, I'm going to, I'll follow up with you after the meeting. What do you, you know, what's the best way to reach you or it's the best, best way to get follow up with you. If you, if you set it up, you're much more likely to have successful follow-up engagements because you've set it up and this is the same thing, but I've never, I've never heard that strategy applied to gathering feedback. And I also really love the idea of bringing in someone else to, to get your feedback for you. Someone in, you know, could be the, your CEO or someone in leadership or an outside consultant or someone in marketing it could be a lot of people, but if it can't be, it kind of can't be the sales manager or the salesperson that were engaged in the deal. No, ideally not because we, you're too close to it. It just puts them in an awkward position. Steve, can I share something which I haven't shared before um, yeah. for, for your group today? So the big challenge that, that I've had in my business is we run a small business and lots of people are saying, we'd love to do win-loss reviews. It's, it makes sense. You know, we'd love to get that feedback. So we've been doing interviews all over the world with lots of different people, but that doesn't scale particularly well. And so for like 12 months, you know, no, more, probably about three or four years, I've had this kind of, oh, how would we do this at scale? How would we do this at scale? And then during the pandemic, 
we sort of said, well, maybe we can kind of have a crack at this. So we're, I don't know, three or four weeks away from, from finalizing the development of something that hopefully is going to do it at scale, which will integrate into your CRM system. And you push a button and it says, right, we're going to do a kind of a condensed version of the, of the really in-depth win-loss review on, on any, you know, any deal that you're working on. And, and that's the thing that's most exciting for us is to say, how can we give people the opportunity to actually do a win or a loss or a post-sales review on every deal, win, lose, or draw, very, very you know, cost-effectively, but in a way that you can then start to see the trends across the data. Um, so that's the thing that's super exciting. Trinity Digital, which is the, you know, the not very uh, original name that we've come up with, is the, is the thing that we're going to launch. And, and I'm just hoping it'll help to sort of address this gap for, for more for more businesses. So there you go. The big Very cool. Yeah. I mean, kind of like a B2B Yelp, an opportunity for your, your customers to give feedback on your sales cycle almost. I think that's very cool. And I, uh, I think, I think, I think that could be very valuable for people. I, I like it a lot. Um, well, the next, the next piece is uh, sales in 60 seconds. So quick questions and quick answers. Um, okay. From your experience uh, and what you found, what, what do you think is the number one driver of customer decisions i think it's it's the quality of the people they're going to be interacting with on the on the um on the vendor side uh, at least in the world i come from which tends to be a little bit more enterprise um you know feature function product market fit gets you gets you as i said to the shortlist but then it's who are we buying from and, and, and what are they going to be like to work with is is the key driver and what's your best tip for a salesperson who um, maybe isn't having the best quarter or the best year. Focus on your customer's customer. So we have a tendency to sell to the person across the table from us, but invariably that person is trying to deliver an outcome either internally to stakeholders or externally to customers or partners. Find out who they're trying to deliver an outcome for. Understand exactly what that looks like. What are the timeframes? What are the milestones? What are the metrics associated with that? And then get around their side of the table and say, how are we jointly going to deliver on an outcome for your, for your customer? Change the whole conversation, change the whole dynamics, because no, no longer are you trying to sell them something and then they go away and deliver an outcome. You're jointly trying to solve their problem. Yeah. Well, and, and you mentioned um, like how people can sense desperation if, if a salesperson is, is desperate or, or uh, you know, too, too, too thirsty for the sale or too thirsty yeah. for, for winning. How, how can a salesperson avoid sounding desperate or needy in a sales situation? I think the key thing is you have to stop focusing on the outcome. You, you've literally just got to dismiss it and, and walk in there and say, I honestly don't care if I make a sale or not. I, that's, that's the furthest thing from my mind. I just need this to be a really, really good interaction. So all my energy, all my focus, all my preparation will be focused on this. And what happens is the magical pixie dust of, of sales happens and that you have a really good interaction and then you move to the next step. We have to stop worrying about, because you know, from the customer's perspective, the sale isn't the last step. The sale in some respects is just the first step towards you know, an outcome that they're trying to achieve. We get fixated on the sale. That should just be a step in the, a step in the process. So, so we really need to you know, lose that fixation on making a sale and, and get hyper vigilant around how do we just make this an incredible interaction? Because here's the thing that I've learned. Often a customer is only a customer when they buy from us for the second time. The first time they buy, they're just dipping their toe in the water. They're seeing what we're gonna be like to work with. And then if we do a really, really good job from a delivery perspective, the doors magically open and we see the real nirvana behind, which is, you know, which is incredible. But too often we get fixated on the first sale and then we don't do the really important stuff, which is actually delivering on the promises that we've made. Absolutely. And you, you know, you, you, you've taught us a lot of valuable sales lessons here. What would you say is the most valuable sales lesson that you've learned over the years? Ah, oh, that's a big question. I think it, this might sound embarrassingly simple, but it would be becoming easier to buy from. There's a lot of companies and even salespeople who are, we don't make it easy to buy from them. There's all these little invisible obstacles that we create in the, in the buying process, which, which make it trickier for people to buy from us. So, so just, just really focus on becoming easier to buy from, and then look at all of the kind of component parts of your sales cycle and say, how could we improve that? How could we tweak that? How could we simplify that? How could we make that 
more engaging or, you know, that is surprise and delight. And if you go, you know, really, really easy thing to say, become easy to buy from, really, really, really hard thing to do. And obviously as salespeople, we can only influence so much of it. But I talk to CEOs and owners of companies and I say exactly the same thing. You've got to make it easy for people to buy from you. And if you do that, you'll, you'll sell more. It's as simple as that. Yeah, it's a, it's an area I, I see so many companies uh, stumble on. You know, they, they, they give power and create organizations within their organization that block deals. They, they create processes and, you know, things that people have to do to be qualified for the next step or to get resources. It's, it's, uh, they, make it, they make it hard. They, they won't let people, you know, do a free trial of their stuff, in our industry at least. It's incredible. No, it's incredible how, how many barriers to entry we put to people actually becoming customers of ours. And I think here's the, here's the big rub at the moment, Steve. The, the world of B2B and B2C is, is sort of merging and blending and overlapping. And so the expectations of customers is changing. And, and because of everyone having such a good B2C customer experience, our expectations of B2B is, I want it to be more like that. I want it to be easier. The, the balance of power has shifted from, from vendor to, to buyer, and it will never shift back. But there's a lot of vendors who still think they've got more power than they have. And no, this is our, you've got to jump through this hoop and then jump through this hoop. And people are like, you know what? I don't want to jump through those hoops. So, so they're voting with their wallets and they're going a different direction. Absolutely. And that's, and that's a big change that I've seen over my career, for sure. I mean, when I, started, when I started in software, you could not have done a trial of, of, of a product. And today, I mean, if you won't set people, someone up on a, in a trial, it's almost, it's almost table stakes. I mean, it you really have, is. Have, like we were walking, talking brochures back in the day because yeah. they couldn't get that information elsewhere. So we had power. Now they have way more information than we have almost always. So therefore, none of that is, is valuable. We've got to find other ways to add value. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as an actionable takeaway, what, what would you say the first step would be for the field salespeople listening today uh, who want to better understand why they're winning or losing deals? I would go and have a chat to my sales director or, you know, someone in a position of authority inside the business and say, Hey, why aren't we doing this? Why, why don't we get feedback in a, in a consistent, repeatable way from the deals we're working on? And why, why couldn't we, or why shouldn't we? And, and actually take some action to, to try and address this. Cause it's, it's such a, it's such a big gap on the one hand, but, but such a silver bullet on the other, if you can unlock it, and you've earned it. You've done the work. You've, you've actually earned this feedback. All that you're missing is the capture mechanism. That's the only thing you're missing. So, you know, work out a plan to capture this feedback. And, you know, yes, there's, there's companies like us and others around the world, but equally you could do it yourselves internally as well. But just focus on it because it will, it will you know, um, blow you away with just how much value is there and how much you're leaving on the table at the end of every single engagement. Yeah, so so much knowledge that you can then improve upon, right? And and yeah, we awesome. believe in three sixty reviews with within the company, right? Like where everybody is able to review people, and I think that's kind of become really common in the last yeah. decade or so. But ever since Google started doing it, when back when I was there, but they, uh, I feel like this is this is a three sixty review doesn't no one thinks about that as including their customers, but it, it which, should. Which is crazy because you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's just navel gazing. We haven't got our customer involved. What's what's the point? Because the feedback we're getting is just kind of self-fulfilling. It, it, it's not actually telling us anything new. As soon as we bring our customer, and this is the thing, anytime we do workshops or any of that nature, and I say, hey, can we bring some of your customers in? People are like, oh, okay, maybe, yeah. And then the customers come in, and it's super valuable, and all the salespeople are like falling off the front edge of their seats because they're so engaged. And they're like, why don't we do this more often? We should do we, any opportunity to get our customers inside the tent through whatever mechanism we should be doing it because that's the voices we need to be listening to more. I'm going to try to summarize everything that we've talked about today here. Um, first of all, a lot of salespeople make assumptions about why they lost the deal. Salespeople might assume that they lost on price, that they lost on competition, that they're not getting enough internal sponsorship, et cetera. But to understand why you lost, it's important to ask your prospects for feedback. Ask where you did well and where there's room to do better or to grow. Not understanding why you lost a deal can affect your win rate and getting specific feedback will help salespeople know exactly where the gaps are in their process or their product or their company even, or in themselves, all, all these different things. 
poor discovery is a big problem for a lot of salespeople. Maybe the biggest problem. You've got to listen and you've got to take the time to understand the customer before rushing to talk about your product. Become a great salesperson by working to understand the risk and uncertainty in your prospects' organizations. And then see how you can mitigate these issues. Understand your customer's customer, I think, is, is, is what Kian said. Salespeople need to be very adaptable in these changing times. As tech automates certain sales tasks, it allows you to focus on the higher value tasks. And, and so it's so important to develop your soft skills that you can do those higher value tasks better. Curiosity, humility, humility and emotional intelligence, so you know, EQ or, or uh, instead of IQ, are, uh, are very important. They're maybe the most important skills for, that salespeople can have today. So ask for feedback during the sales cycle in a professional way um, and, and an appropriate way. The way you can do this is you can say something like, at the end of this engagement, it would be great to get some feedback from you because it's, it's really important uh, to our process, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Finally, create an environment that's comfortable for your prospects or your customers to give feedback to you. One way you can do this is you can find an independent person or a consulting firm or an independent party to, to, to gather that feedback for you. So tell me, where, where can our listeners read more about your work? Where can they reach out to you? I feel like we've covered so much super valuable stuff here. Uh, so, you know, certainly on LinkedIn, you can, you can kind of come and find me and connect with me. I, I write there pretty frequently and I just try and drop nuggets that I think will be useful. Head to the Trinity Perspective website. In the next couple of weeks, we'll be popping up a, a landing page for Trinity Digital so people can start registering their interest if they want to have a look at it as the beta comes out. Um, you, can, you can grab a copy of the book, head to Amazon, um, or just reach out to me directly. You, you know, like you, Steve, I think... I, you know, I love helping salespeople with their craft because it's a, it's a tough gig, but it's also an incredibly rewarding profession. And, you know, I really want to help people put the profession in sales profession or professional in sales professional, you know, earn that badge and, and be able to kind of stand tall and say, yeah, I work in sales and I do an unbelievable job and, and I help my customers and I, you know, help the rest of the company stay afloat and, and, and be proud of that. You know, we don't have to we don't have to sort of hang our heads in shame because we're sales professionals. I think it's a great career and, you know, anything I can do to help, uh, I'm always happy to. Well, I appreciate that. And, and this has been a, uh, a fantastic episode of the outside sales talk. Um, if you work in field sales, you'll love Badger Maps, the number one route planner that helps you sell 20% more and drive 20% less. You can get a free trial at badgermapping.com today. If anyone can think of any other sales reps that would benefit from the stuff that Kian has told us today, uh, definitely share the love and forward this episode on to them. Kian, thanks so much for being, here, uh, for being here today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And, and take care. Take care until next time, everybody. 